Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fult. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, and today we're going to talk about a breakthrough that happened a few months ago, maybe a year now, where HIV-blocking proteins were expressed in rice, a world food staple. Today we have a co-host, and our co-host today is Michelle Wu. And Michelle, how are you doing out there, Michelle? Hi, I'm doing good. <laughs> Michelle is a high school student, right? Yes, in Lethbridge, Alberta. In Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. And I had the pleasure of meeting Michelle a few weeks ago when I was up in Lethbridge, and she expressed an interest in starting her own podcast. And I said, maybe a good first step is, why don't you co-host with me? So so what do you want to do your podcast about? Um, I have a very similar idea for my podcast, which is discussing biotechnology and new innovations. But I want to do so from the perspective of a high school student or less specifically, just kind of the youth and upcoming generation. Um, I really want to help to increase the education about synthetic biology because it's not something that we speak about very commonly in school. No, you're right. And we, we really don't talk about it much on the podcast either. We just started to touch on synthetic biology in the last few weeks. But what is it that excites you about synthetic biology? I think perhaps it's the wide breadth breadth of opportunity. There's just a whole new world of things that can be done using synthetic biology that would never be possible or imaginable beforehand. With a small amount of information that we're given in high school, it's really difficult to understand all of the complex ideas and innovations happening around us, especially now that subjects such as genetically modified organisms and synthetic biology are being introduced into the news. It's really confusing for students who've never heard of those topics before. Well, that's really great. I give you high marks on wanting to do this now, but the funny part is, is that you're in high school, but you're, I met you at Lethbridge University. So what are you doing at the university? Yeah, so I have been incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity, two opportunities at the University of Lethbridge where I get to explore um, biochemistry more in depth and synthetic biology. So I was at the university to participate in the Heritage Youth Summer Research Program, which is just um, a summer internship that gives me the opportunity to work with professors and master's students in the lab. But I was originally introduced to synthetic biology and genetic engineering through IGEM, which is the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition, um, in the high school track, of course, considering I'm a high school student. Yeah, but you did you go to IGEM last year? I started IGEM halfway through my grade 10 year. So I've been at it now for about two years. Oh, cool. So where, where do you want to go to college and what do you want to study? 
That's a big question for me. Um, I have a few places where I'm considering applying to college, um, but of course nothing's set in stone yet. Right now, I think that I would like to study biochemistry because I think that those tiny little chemical reactions that allow life to occur are so interesting and just the idea of a living organism and the complexity of it makes me really curious. Cool. You know, Florida is really, really nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know if we're on your short list or not. You don't have to say. But in uh, February when it's, uh, you know, um, minus 40 degrees in, in Lethbridge. Um, it's uh, pretty nice down here. It, you know, it, it's, and it's, I use minus 40 cause it's centigrade and Fahrenheit. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same, <laughs> but um, it's, uh, you know, it's usually 22 degrees uh, Celsius here. So just keep that in mind as you're filling out your applications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll keep that in mind. Florida may be a little too far from home for me. Oh, you know, but it's good to it's good to get away for a little bit. Well, you can come here for graduate school. Yes, maybe when I'm older. (laughs) Okay, that's right. It sounds good. So um, today we're going to talk to Dr. Ivahalia Vanvaka, and she was part of a team that about a year ago worked on a project which was involved in HIV prophylaxis. So keeping people from spreading HIV with a rather innovative method. Did you have a chance to look at the paper? Yeah, I did look into the articles. I think it's a really interesting topic, um, and I think it's it's a really interesting way to approach the issue. Well, what her uh, group came together with was using rice as a way to uh, express a couple of important proteins and some lectins, some other uh, plant-associated products, that would actually block the virus from entering the cell and in the presence of a rice extract seemed to do this very well and the idea was using this in a prophylactic kind of way so uh, people would grind the rice and then make a kind of a powder and that uh, this would help to limit um, this would help to limit transmission of HIV from one person to another because it can be spread through breaks in the skin or by intimate contact that kind of thing. So here we go, and we'll talk to Dr. Evangelia Vanvaka. Hello, Gavin. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you. I mean, it was kind of funny how we connected, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure it was. Well, I, I, I remember when your paper came out last year in Science, and this was a very exciting paper at the time, and there was a lot of buzz about it in the media, and I reached out to some of the co-authors on the paper and, and didn't get a really enthusiastic response, or I don't remember exactly what happened, but then you contacted me and said, wait a minute, that's the paper that I was on and uh, your first author. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about uh, my research and uh, the improvements and the updates that are happening <laughs> in the HIV world. So let me give you a formal introduction. We're speaking with Dr. Evangelia Vanvaka. She's uh, working with the Innovative Genomics Institute in Berkeley, California. Right now, you know, we're talking about the HIV paper from last year and HIV rates, you know, are, are, are at least stable and maybe even declining in terms of the, the death rate um, because of the um, antiretroviral therapies and they're working. But um, why do we need new products to control the disease? 
In order to reply to this uh, question, I would like to give you some latest statistics. So in 2018, we had 1.7 million new HIV infections, and we had 37.9 million people still living with HIV, and 707,000 people died. Uh, So we can see that uh, even though we have... Uh, the antiretroviral treatments, and as long as you take your pills, you can live a normal, healthy life as an individual. There is no cure for HIV. And uh, everybody speaks about a vaccine, that would be the best, but still there is, there is no vaccine even until today. And the treatment gap um, is uh, approximately 40%. So... Uh, In order to meet this treatment gap, we need to reduce the number of transmissions. The only way to do that is providing more prevention options. And really, that's what your paper last year set out to talk about with some of these kind of prevention options. And is that really important, especially in the developing world? So I would, um, as Deborah Birnkrant said, that is director of FDA, it is better to prevent HIV rather than to treat a lifelong infection of HIV. So prevention, the, the primary prevention has to do with reducing the exposure to HIV. And um, due to the fact that HIV spreads mainly through sexual transmission, there were various ways to fight HIV. The... Um, we can say like the main ones is uh, the prophylactic ways are uh, condoms, abstinence and monogamy, which are not doing very well. Uh, as we can say that the rate is decreasing on use on any of that. And uh, in some times due to socioeconomic and cultural factors, uh, is not, uh, this situation is worse, we can say. So... The more ways people have to choose in order for prevention of HIV, the more effective we are as a community uh, by reducing the incidence of HIV. And I think this is a good thing, right? So let's talk about how HIV infects the cells. How does the virus recognize lymphocytes and begin infection? Okay, so HIV, uh, as we know, is a lentivirus. It belongs to the retrovirus family and... um, it has a um, uh, long story short, it has a capsid protein, which is enclosed, uh, the matrix protein is surrounded by matrix protein, sorry, and then this by a viral envelope that consists of two layers of phospholipids. This by itself consists of the envelope protein, as we know, that it consists of a cap of three molecules called glycoprotein 120 and a stem which is consists of three glycoprotein 41 molecules. So how exactly... The, the virus goes and infects the cells. Uh, the HIV life cycle consists in different steps, as we can say, in different, yes, different steps. The first and foremost is called binding, which is uh, it happens on the surface of a T cell where the HIV binds to a CD4 receptor. And um, the glycoprotein 120, we can say it binds there. There is a conformation, it opens up, and then it binds uh, subsequently to co-receptors CXCR4 and CCR5. And then we have the fusion inside the human cells. So let me just go back and revisit that just for a second. So you have on the outside of the virus, glycoprotein 120 and 41, and then they connect with the CD4 receptor on the, on the, on the T cell. 
And then a number of co-receptors and other things like CCR5, they come in and facilitate the movement of the virus into the cell. Exactly. There is the first, the glycoprotein, uh, there is the attachment first, the binding that is called. And then uh, uh, once there is the first uh, connection uh, with the primary uh, receptors and co-receptors, there is the fusion of the viral particle into the human cells. Okay, that's because it's really important for us to understand this in order to understand how, how your solution, uh, potential solution, uh, can work. Exactly. Because we are aiming the first step, because we believe and every, everybody knows that once the uh, HIV, uh, once the virus uh, enters its target cells, the infection is irreversible. So uh, the main target for my research was to focus on the first step and to prevent the HIV of even uh, doing this, uh, going uh, and attached to the human cells and infect human cells. So last year in science, there was this paper that came out that everybody was pretty excited about. Could you explain exactly what you showed inside that paper? So our work, uh, what we saw uh, inside that paper is that uh, we did a proof of concept for combination microbicide, first and foremost. And what we saw is that uh, we saw a groundbreaking strategy of simultaneously expressing in the same plant three microbicidal proteins. And we showed and we demonstrated that this is the only way that such a cocktail can be manufactured at low cost for the people in need, especially in the developing world. And in addition, we also demonstrated that the endogenous rice proteins improve substantially the effectiveness of three microbicide compounds. If this is a good approach, why aren't the antibodies and lectins just produced in animal cells or microbes? Yes, so um, the mammalian cells and the microbe uh, production platforms are too expensive and they lack sufficient capacity for low-income countries, which suffer the greatest disease burden. That's why the alternative plant-based production strategies are an excellent alternative providing and providing enhanced microbicidal activity. And that's really good. This is a great place to take a short break. We're speaking with Dr. Evangelia Vanvaka, and she's currently working at the Innovative Genomics Institute in Berkeley, working on ways to uh, provide some prophylaxis against HIV infection by using a plant-based production system to produce antibodies and lectins that can interfere with the way viruses bind to the T-cells and initiate that infection. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, co-hosted by Michelle Wu. Michelle's there. And we'll be back in just a moment. I just hate going to the store. All of these labels, free-range, GMO-free, certified Chernobyl radiation-safe. It's so confusing, especially in the area of food technology. Well, hi, lady shopper. I couldn't help but overhear that you were showing signs of distress about food and farming. Yes, strange guy, I don't know. I'm concerned. I don't want biotechnology, synthetic biology, or precision agriculture in my food. Mother Nature gave it all the precision I need. Wow, you seem indeed lost and confused. Why do you feel this way? Well, for years, I've listened to these luminaries, Food Babe, Gwyneth Paltrow, and David Avocado Wolf. But now I wonder, are they for real? Do I need certified GMO-free salt? Does salt even have genetics to modify, random stranger? 
If only there was a concise book that explained it all with reputable science that I, a person without a science degree, will totally understand. Wait, I need to introduce you to Food 5.0. Food 5.0? Is that, is that gluten-free? Well, sort of. See Food 5.0 with a book called Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, a new book by Robert Syke. Sounds interesting, random science man. Tell me more. Well, the book is a substantial science-based book looking at modern farming. It's written for everyone, the average person that has concerns or just wants to know more about food or farm technology. From genes in the field to sensors on the farm, it's really a great book. I have a copy right here. Indeed, this looks like a comprehensive work that may challenge my assumptions and answer so many questions. Thank you, random grocery store stranger! No, thank you for challenging your own pitifully misplaced beliefs. And reach out to Rob or even the Talking Biotech podcast host if you have any questions. Will do. Imagine, there's something other than coffee at the grocery store that will make me feel smarter. Find Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future, on Amazon or from wherever you can buy books, if there are such places anymore. And hurry before food activists buy them all and burn them. This is a needed piece of work that has a place in helping people understand what's on their plate and how it got there. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Ivanhalia Vanvaka, and she is with the Innovative Genomics Institute in Berkeley, California. And we're talking about a plant-based solution, uh, potentially, to at least alleviate some of the transmission of HIV. So going back to questions, you know, your group's solution was to express antibodies and lectins in rice. So why did they, why did you choose rice as the model for this? So rice um, is a widely available resource that is grown all over the world and most importantly is inexpensive. Uh, And also the cultivation infrastructure is already in place. And uh, as well, dry seeds can be stored indefinitely under rubbing conditions. So there is no need for cold chain and for for distribution. That were the important factors that uh, drive us to the solution of, uh, to the outcome of using rice as our production platform. We wanted something that pretty much it will be, it will grow widely, it will be inexpensive, and it will be very easy, uh, let's say, to produce something on spot, on the countries that needed it most. Um, I was just wondering where rice can grow. Like, how wide is the variety of climates that rice can grow in? Does it require a lot of, like, like, does it require heat or does it require a lot of water? So maybe drier places might need different irrigation systems, possibly, or... Michelle, really, rice is a pretty much a, a crop that can grow in a lot of different places and can be adapted, but it's different kinds of rice. And so it's, uh, you know, rice is hardly one thing. There's all kinds of different types of rice. And if this is a solution that's put into maybe a generic type that is in many parts of, you know, Asia and some parts of Africa, um, maybe that's a good step in the, right, in the first step in the right direction that maybe could be adapted to other local strains later on. You mentioned briefly that that the uh, 
antibodies and the lectins, which are the things that are interfering with the binding, that they still are perfectly active after the rice is, you know, dried down and shipped. But, you know, is it stand withstand cooking and everything else? This is not meant to be for, uh, it's not an edible uh, prophylactic. It's supposed to be the, the function of it. It's that um, uh, you have the seeds either produced in some other place and they are sipped or they are produced on the spot, on, on the place, on the country itself. Uh, and then you just take the seeds, you smash them, uh, you make a powder out of it and you mix them with water or some kind of uh, liquid. You make a paste and you apply it to the place that you have to apply it uh, in order to protect you. It's a topical application. Okay. Um, according to the work, the other components of rice actually increase the activity. Can you tell me about why that is and why it happens? So uh, we demonstrated that uh, the enhanced glycoprotein 120 binding was dependent on rice proteins. And primarily, it was because of the global infraction. Uh, the mechanism of this enhanced binding is unclear and uh, more um, experiments and more analysis is necessary in order to identify the exact reasoning behind why rice is so special. Uh, I can give uh, different possibilities as we gave also in, the po in, in our study, in our publication, that can include, for example, possibilities uh, like an impact on the oligomerization state of the component or molecular crowding, that can affect glycan-based binding sites or even induced feeding. As we can see, uh, um, there are studies that show that cyanovirin, one lectin, um, depend on the combination that you do with different compounds. There is a different binding on uh, different epitopes and it depends on the combination that you do. There is a competition between them or a synergy between them. And as we found that on our case, rice extract it really improved the synergy and helped everything collaborate and uh, increase the binding and the neutralization efficiency activity against HIV. And it's great that it works in vitro. And I mean, you can demonstrate, you know, in a test tube that you have binding to the glycoproteins and, and interference of um, with binding and infection. But have you tried any of this on animals? Like, can you, you know, <laughs> put a little powder on the mouse and see if it works? Has any of that been done? Animals and human trial are desperately needed to further this research. And as you are aware, these are not only difficult from a regulatory perspective, but also they are expensive. So in order to to say that we can move on and do something for this. Therefore, we are looking at the support for scientific community, including, you can say, private industry, government institutions, as well as philanthropic organizations, such as Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in order to provide for us the necessary funding to continue and move this research one step forward and see if there are if the in vivo as well analysis give us the results that the promising results that we see in vitro. What kind of regulatory barriers? You mentioned having to speak to private corporations and government. What kind of regulations do you have to meet so that um, this technology can meet the people that really need it? So in order to cultivate any transgenic plant in the field in any country in the world, developing or industrialized, the developer needs to go through a long and convoluted process of deregulation. 
as everybody knows. Uh, the difficulty to do this and the costs are immense, as you know. There are issues that uh, are important and relevant, such as we can say safety and efficacy that needs to be assessed on a scientific basis and case by case, we can say. So we can say that all GMOs on the market, uh, I would like to, to say that, have passed all these assessments, despite what environmental groups might say, and other derived from the overall climate against GMOs, promulgated by a number of NGOs and many EU governments. So this has nothing though to do with the safety as all relevant safety competent authorities have already established the safety of all GMOs products currently on the market and those that are in the pipeline in terms of humans, animals, environment, biodiversity and the like. So pretty much, long story short, in short, uh, the public needs to start listening to scientists and experts, I would say, and not to blogger moms and politicians that they follow a specific agenda just to be re-elected. And we need to push any kind of promising research in France and not finding ways to block them and stop them. No, that's uh, very true. I mean, we talk about that all the time here on the podcast. I guess the other thought that I had on, on the technology is, do other viruses use that same sort of recognition with the, with the glycoprotein that maybe this could block herpes virus or something else? Actually, there are many viruses that are used the same kind of uh, the theory or uh, the same, kind, the same uh, pathway infection. They, they are surrounded from glycoproteins. Um, we, again, um, there has been like uh, these antibodies and uh, uh, I think these lectins, um, they have been tested against uh, other viruses as well and they have shown uh, promising results in vitro. However, we will need to test this. Again, we need like uh, some kind of project or funding in order to see if they actually work and for what they are working. Are there plans to move the same technology to other world food staples other than rice? So currently, we have not done any further research uh, on for other staple, uh, food staples, um, uh, as I mentioned before, but... Um, um, I would say that uh, plants as production platforms have many advantages and the key advantages of plants are scale, cost and safety. So I believe it is really worth to, to try. And uh, for example, they can be scaled up and down rapidly by just ad uh, adjusting the amount of the land. The cost is minimal, especially after the creation of the first plant. Per se, so especially if we think that uh, we can uh, produce more than one compound on the same rice seed, for example, the cost it can decrease even further. Even even further, uh, it can decrease to one third. And we should not forget as well that plants uh, such as rice, maize, etc., have grass status, which is generally regarded as safe. So as far as regulatory agencies. Uh, the regulatory burden should be lower for uh, plant production platforms. I was just wondering um, how how much uh, like how much rice you would need to smash up and you know apply to to have an appropriate dosage. Uh, so uh, because it's a topical application and it's not an eatable uh, way of treatments. Um, you you don't uh, you don't actually need a 
a specific, you can say, concentration or uh, specific dosage. Uh, it's uh, more or less, uh, I would say, if you apply to the to the area <laughs> that it's it's needed, whether it's applied, it is uh, the surface. Your skin is uh, is protected or not. Because the HIV, the way that enters is through lesions and uh, scars, and uh, uh, so yeah. As far as this, uh, as far as uh, you have a barrier on there, uh, I believe you will be protected. Now, for sure, I'm not an expert on this. Uh, that's why the uh, human trial, like the animal trials and human trials, needs to come and needs to verify if there is uh, uh, any side effects because. Uh, the, my, uh, the research that we did, we already saw that there is uh, no cytotoxicity in vitro, but we will need to assess whether it's uh, safe for animals, safe for humans, and what exactly, how much of the cream and all the other details that needs to be applied in order to make it effective. Oh, that's really wonderful. It, 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 thinking about the idea of a preventative for HIV, which is still a tremendous problem in much of the developing world where you can't get antiretroviral therapy necessarily, but you can get rice. And if this kind of thing is deployed, it may be very helpful. If people wanted to learn more about what you do and more about the project, um, are you present on social media or is there a website where they can find more? Uh, they can find me in LinkedIn with uh, my whole name, and they can find me as well on uh, Twitter with uh, my name is Aries Vamvaka Evi. Very good. And we'll include um, those links inside the website episode. Well, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's uh, Dr. Ivan Halia Vamvaka. Uh, she's at the Innovative Genomics Institute. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. And then and also, thank you, Michelle Wu. Thank you very much for uh, joining me from Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really exciting and enlightening to be a part of this. It's really great. And do you know what you're going to call your podcast? Right now, I'm going through a few different names, but currently I have an Instagram account dedicated to my podcast that I've named Teen Biotech Talks. I don't know if that will remain the for sure name, but right now that's what I'm rolling with. Yeah, the only problem is it's a little; it'll get stale when you uh, when you roll your odometer over to twenty, yeah. and you still want to do the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know you got to think about the timeliness of these. I didn't think this thing would go five years. So, well, good luck to you on this. It's really great. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, write a review on iTunes. We've got so many of them. One person gave us three stars, and we got to <laughs> neutralize that. Um, thank you very, very much for joining us, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app.
C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.